Hello, everyone. Welcome to this episode of the Wealth Management Today podcast. My name is Craig Iskowitz, and I'm a strategy consultant helping wealth management firms make better technology and business decisions. And this is the Winners of Wealth Tech, a special series where I interview leaders of the industry and disassemble their habits and traits that I feel enable them to achieve their levels of success, as well as try to extract nuggets of wisdom and best practices to share with all of you. Rich Cancro is the founder and chief executive officer of Advisor Engine, where he sets the company's vision and strategy. Rich brings over 25 years of experience building wealth management technology. Prior to founding Advisor Engine, Rich served as a managing director at Bank of America Merrill Lynch, where he was head of the RIA custody business, and he was also responsible for developing their global wealth and investment management financial planning and reporting tools. Before that, Rich created industry-leading solutions for J.P. Morgan, Bear Stearns, and DLJ Direct. Rich holds a BA from Gettysburg College. This episode of Wealth Management Today is brought to you by Ezra Group Consulting. Broker-dealers are under tremendous pressure to retain and attract new advisors, and their technology ecosystem is a key part. Ezra Group Consulting is your go-to source for building the next generation of advisor and client experiences that will supercharge your firm's growth, increase user satisfaction, and reduce operating costs. If you're a broker-dealer and you want to leapfrog your competition, contact Ezra Group today for a free one-hour consultation and 10% off your first strategic planning project. Go to ezragroup.co, that's E-Z-R-A-G-R-O-U-P dot C-O for more information. And I'd like to welcome to the Winners of Wealth Tech version of our Wealth Management Day podcast, Rich Cancro, CEO and founder of Advisor Engine. Rich, welcome. Thank you very much, Craig. Pleasure to be here. It's a pleasure to talk to you. Uh, we've known each other for a while and through the industry, and it's always great to talk to people I know and respect and kind of find out more about them. Congratulations on being a winner of Wealth Tech. Thank you very much. It's exciting to be a winner. You will get uh, a plaque and uh, a gift card. That's all the winners get. Nice. Looking forward to it. I, w- I want to kind of go back in time and talk about how you your, your career has been all in, in financial services. Um, and some people tend to bounce around, but you didn't. And I wanted to kind of go back to your DLJ Direct days and sort of talk about how you went from, you know, bachelors of arts in college and how you made the decision to go to DLJ Direct. Was there anything in between? And what sort of made you take the path of the financial services industry? Before DLJ Direct, I was at uh, Waterhouse Securities, and it's actually the third person in what has now become TD uh, Institutional Advisors and uh, TD Ameritrade Institutional, it is. Um, and, uh, you know, the first day there was an interesting day. Um, I literally, is my basically my first job, and I was in the middle of reading the handbook, and next to me was an active trader desk. And uh, this is before trades were being done online in the early 90s. And the it was frenetic. And literally my first uh, 30 minutes, again, I'm sitting at my desk trying to figure out how to use a Quotron. And I had asked to start answering phone calls for another group. And my first 30 minute experience was um, I got a phone call, I picked it up and the guy asked for a quote or an option. And I am looking at a syllabus and how to actually get a quote. 
I'm putting an A in this. Right. And the guy is escalating. I will not repeat since we're in a podcast the words he was using. You can, you can repeat. We'll just cut it out. <laughs> but he was, you know, the word starts with F and then uh, A was the second word of my confidence about giving him a quote. Right. And eventually he asked for uh, me to hang up, to get off the phone and put somebody confident on. So right. I was, that was my first few minutes. Well, how did you get the I job at Waterhouse out of college? Um, I think they're a recruiter. But, you know, the main thing there is that what I learned, right, being the third person in that group, is I did everything, right? So I took calls from advisors, I opened up accounts, I worked with all the operational areas of Waterhouse, I placed trades for fixed income, for, for mutual funds, for stocks, so did all of that. And what I learned, and I've been passionate ever since then, is the care that advisors have for their clients is is amazing, right? They fundamentally... Um, are passionate about the, their life journey of their clients. And the other servicing advisors is in everything that, you know, I did then until now, it's, it's so critical to the success for them. So whether it's operational, getting accounts open, getting them funded, doing it correctly, mm-hmm. to um, getting, you know, right down to the address, right? Getting that address right, uh, super important, because that's the first impression that an advisor will have with their client. So when you kind of go through the, the stream of it as a vendor or as a custodian, what you're doing with that advisor actually has a significant impact in how they represent themselves to their client and, and their care for their client. But just seeing the, the, the level of um, care that they, they have for everything going right from a service perspective um, and everything else an advisor does um, was really ingrained day one uh, working with advisors. So was it a conscious decision to get into the securities business or you just took the first job that looked interesting? You, oh, you really, you really wanted me to go back. So, okay. um, so my, as a, it was a, a business, but you know, what, what caused me to get an interest in financial services was going all the way back to approximately 1980. And my grandmother gave all of her grandchildren $500 and we invested it in a stock. It happened to be Chrysler. So she gave you the money and she told you you had to invest it in a stock. Well, my father actually recommended Chrysler. Hmm. And this is right when the time where Chrysler was with Lee Iacocca and was going bankrupt, basically. <laughs> and so what that made me do is read the Wall Street Journal every day. You know, yeah. as a young person, and I'm, I was around 13, I was reading the journal every day, following the stock, what's going on in the market, mm-hmm. understanding recession that ultimately you know, came and all those things. That really got me engaged in, in financial services. And probably what helped was they went from five hundred to twenty five hundred dollars, which mm-hmm. was huge, right. and is really exciting. Um, okay. So that that really got me involved uh-huh. in financial services, mm-hmm. and ultimately that's what I wanted to do. And uh, I won't say the name of the firm, but my very first stop uh, was a firm that I was um, a stockbroker for. I lasted all of six weeks. Mm-hmm. I decided that I did not like basically selling stocks and mutual funds and bonds and cold calling people, 300 people a day, and decided that I really loved the industry, but that wasn't the right place for me. Mm -hmm. I was not to be a broker. And when I started working with RIAs at TD, that's what really hit my soul. Like that, that fiduciary standard, that care, um, that I was, I was literally uh, hearing and feeling every day from advisors really hit, hit my, my, uh, my soul. Mm -hmm. And so I was always passionate about that. Um, you know, from there, um, I went to what was PC Financial Network, which ultimately became DLG Direct. But how'd you get there? Like, what, why would you leave Waterhouse when it was doing so well? So, uh, what was really exciting about PCVN, it was technology driven. Hmm. 
and it was on Prodigy. And they were, you know, I felt like they were starting something. They were really at the cusp of something new. But let's talk about what Prodigy is for those people who don't know what that is. <laughs> um, sure out there. It was the internet before the internet. Right. Um, basically, it was a before network. AOL. Before AOL, correct. So it was a network um, where people, you know, there was a lot of message boards for sure mm-hmm. on there, but it's also a place to get information, get content. Right. You have and to dial in with a modem. In a dial in the modem, yes, thank you. Uh, I, I have the sound in the back of my head now, you know, the bomb, 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 bomb the, the, for the modem ringing. I was just talking to um, Steve Strand, who was the co-founder of Advent. Mm-hmm. So he was 10 years before you founding yeah. Advent. He was talking about connecting over 1,200 baud modems and optimizing the, the, the PC interaction to get more data yes. over that modem. For the, you know, so, yeah, it's... We're, we're doing old school discussions on this podcast. It is. Yeah. Well, you know, if you want to continue with that, we, they also, no, um, we don't have to. yeah, we don't have to, but this, I feel like I must, there was a, there's a, a product yeah. called, uh, reality online and how right. they dealt with that is you would dial in mm-hmm. and download the data and then you're kind of working locally and then yes. you upload it, mm-hmm. um, which is the way how they dealt with it. And it was exciting when the modems, you know, started doubling in speed. Um, anyway, just to throw another old school thing. I, I worked yeah. for uh, ADP. Okay. When they had brokerage, which which eventually became uh, Broadridge Financial. Yeah. And back sure. around the time you were working at DLJ, I was building the first, uh, on, via CompuServe, the mm-hmm. first dial-up market data yep. network where clients could, at a remote office somewhere, without a, without a 56 KB hard line, could dial the phone and get quotes on their terminal, yep. which was revolutionary. That was revolutionary yeah. at the time. So, so going back to Prodigy, the network that uh, uh, that does no longer that no longer exists. No longer exists. Um, so it was exciting. So you know, obviously I was young, and and now we're doing dealing with technology, right. trades. Uh, you know, it started off as you know individual trade getting quotes, individual trades. Right. Uh, but then ultimately, you know, we built out an online account opening. So that was in 1993, Craig, mm-hmm. where we had an online account opening. Can we say uh, online? You mean paperless account opening? Paperless. Well, yes, that's right. And um, so all you the data. the Prodigy and do that? Yep, you go in the Prodigy and you would put all your information in and it would come across. Uh, we were you know, interacting with our clients through email. Mm-hmm. So that was, that was great. And so you're able to get quotes. You're able to get out and you do, uh, go online and open an account, um, and all those types of things. We also uh, created this thing where you can actually fund the account as well. And then as we built out, and then we, well, then we went on to America Online hmm. Software, and we were one of the original uh, online brokerages there. And that, that was another transformative moment for us because that was uh, really helped us grow quite a bit. What was the market like then for online? I mean, you know, being an online broker was like, was, was like robo-advisors now. People were freaking out, online brokers, what does this mean? It's going to change things. <laughs> You know, traditional advisor, I, had, I remember I had a Merrill Lynch CMA account. They were, they were saying, don't do this. These guys don't know what they're talking about. So what was yeah. the, the atmosphere like working in, uh, with one of the first online? It, it, well, it's very akin to what's happening today, for sure, in a different way, in the sense that um, it was really exciting. But you're, you're right. It, you know, if you look at the deregulation that happened in the 70s, that created you know, basically discount brokerage and effectively mm-hmm. discount brokerage moved online. And it was just a whole bunch of firms that were created for online brokerage, right. uh, then, that, then they, that effectively they all bought, got bought and became like five firms. Um, mm-hmm. But it was incredibly exciting, right? I remember, you know, our first 
you know, Dave, the thousand trades and uh, all those types of things. And eventually that became a hundred thousand trades in a day. Uh, but the, the, you watch the momentum, you know, just, you felt it every day, like, holy cow, we're growing staff, we're getting more emails, we're getting more accounts open, we're getting more funds coming in, we're getting more trades. And you were just watching, physically watching this happen. And it was a lot of fun. I mean, I really had a great time. And uh, so I started there in client, client service. And then I wrote a memo of a way to improve client service. And that basically um, got me promoted. Uh, that memo is, was all about uh, improving client service, owning issues, seeing them through. And from there, I got a promotion to be the training manager and also to take on quality assurance. Which For all was, the software? Uh, quality assurance it was pretty broad. It was both the quality of the service we delivered, and I'll talk about that in a minute, as well as testing software. So that was my kind of my first really kind of game, starting to get a little bit more on the technology side of it. And um, so I was the first you know person to do that. I started the QA group, yeah. And I did really two things. One was how you know why are clients were calling us, right? Why are they emailing us? Why are they sending letters to us? What was and how can we make it more efficient and make it better for them? So it could have been things they didn't like about our product or about our service or the feature they wanted to really getting grinding with uh, literally like we were getting checks. What's the fastest way for us to get a check or a new account app? Like we had different place to mail things, see which actually is faster for us. What is the best way to, uh, to process the mail? Uh, so everything, everything in between that. So one of the things that people are calling to do, get quotes. Yeah. even though they can do it online. So we built an IVR system. So now you can get quotes through an IVR. You can get it online or through uh, the IVR system. So it's all about making us more efficient, more scalable as a company, and ultimately delivering a better service to our client base. So everything that we, you know, so we would learn, you know, through that analysis of, again, why people are contacting us, how can we automate that? How can we make it better? And we are really focused on that as a company. Um, and on the QA side of testing the software, you know, that was really my first time, you know, learning about technology. And when you, when you, do, when you do quality assurance testing, um, you're really doing two things, right? You're learning about the product probably deeper than anybody in the company because you're testing every single thing in the, in the software. Right. Second thing is you're starting to learn how the technology actually operates, right? So you can start understanding where... Um, you know, is in the back of those days, there's like a of newer technology, mainframe, all that stuff. So just, you know, help me learn. It really helps you learn about how software works and right. ultimately how software is built. Hmm. And as we got into uh, a little later in the 90s, around 1997 ish, um, I was asked to uh, be a program manager for what is now NetX 360 and NetX Investor. At then it was, uh, we called it NetX client and then exchange, mm -hmm. it was really to take the, the DLJ direct software and deliver that to the clients of Pershing. And so it was an, a very informative moment in my career because uh, it, it's, it's driven, it's, it's really informed a lot of things I've done since then. What I learned very quickly is when you build a, a consumer app, which was super cool. And remember they just that, well, I, I didn't say in this podcast, but we, we were innovating all the time. All right, besides the online accounts opening, we end up building streaming quotes, you know, IPO center, delivery, delivery of institutional research, um, real-time P&L. What did you build all that in? 
all sorts of software uh, back, you know, for, <laughs> everything from, uh, well, Windows, the streaming quotes is actually a Windows-based uh, desktop through the internet, which was incredibly cool and very flexible. So if you think mm -hmm. about HTML5 today, that, you know, that's, that solves for that now, but we didn't have HTML5 back then. Mm -hmm. We didn't have Web 2.0. So, you know, to, to give the, the, the user or clients the flexibility and the power of, of, you know, moving columns, sorting data, and being lightning quick, um, you know, a, a, a Windows-based uh, application was really, really good for that. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, our, our uh, chief information officer, Suresh Kumar, uh, absolutely brilliant guy. And, you know, he had a vision on, on how to build a technology stack. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, you know, kind of uh, internal APIs before really APIs became the thing. Right. What was really cool is he built out what's called a, it's called TAP. It's internally called TAP. It's basically a series of messages that we were able to put uh, the front end, multiple front ends on it. So we were able to put America Online to the IVR to mm -hmm. the the Windows uh, application to the internet, and then and then ultimately on the internet. Sure. All those uh, pieces ran through the same set of messages and made us really scalable and efficient in terms mm -hmm. of how we can build the technology and support it. And uh, it was really, you know, just an absolutely brilliant guy. Um, I learned a lot from him. I still do. I use him as a mentor to this day. Um, uh, and just, just a great guy. I mean, he had incredible passion. I mean, he was actually in, in many, many ways, uh, would push the business harder than the business. Uh, he had a great partnership. Uh, my other mentor, uh, Blake Darcy, uh, who was the, the head of uh, DLJ Direct, and the two of them had a great partnership together and a, a mutual trust of each other. Um, and I've, you know, to this day, they're both my mentors. Um, so with that said, um, going back to quality assurance testing, um, uh, our program doing program management. Um, my, our, my first client uh, it was Persian was a was a Persian client, but was Vanguard Brokerage Services. So oh, wow. talk about putting pressure on someone. So it's, it's Vanguard. Yeah. And what I what I learned is that when you build going back a few minutes ago, when you build software, a direct consumer software that's really cool. Now you need to build it for different brands. So you think about a direct consumer where we, it, was, it had a lot of flexibility. It was highly automated, um, but it was built for one kind of op operational framework, one risk framework, um, one brand, you know, one set of pricing and things like that. But now when you're going into basically the custody world and now you're delivering to other broker-dealers or, or RIAs, now you're dealing with multiple risk frameworks, different brands. In the case of broker dealers that have, you know, thousands of reps that have thousands of brands and, you know, they, they have different levels of access of what they're allowed to do around portfolio construction and fee billing and all that stuff. Mm -hmm. We had to peel back a lot of the features and kind of mm -hmm. restart. So our original uh, delivery of NetExchange client was a pretty basic website, mm -hmm. still pretty good for the time, sure. but, but we had to peel back a lot of that cool stuff. Mm -hmm. And then basically rebuild out to what is now, you know, next NetX investor, NetX 360. Right. Um, and so what I learned is, you know, kind of this, when you're building out effectively enterprise software, it's different than building out, an, you know, for on enterprise, right? Mm -hmm. So in other words, um, feature control, function control, data control, entitlements, branding, compliance, uh, disclosures, all that stuff, you have to build it very flexible to, so it can operate with different types of businesses. 
And it was a really important, uh, you know, I got, I saw some scars from then. Did any of the acquisitions that were going on behind the scenes, um, like when DLJ direct was spun off or when credit Swiss acquired you or bank of Montreal, all, <laughs> any of that stuff that, that affect you at all? Sure. What you'll see as we go through my career, that there's a, there's a, commonality between my firms being bought hey, what's up with that yeah that that just seems to follow me wherever i go hmm. yeah you know along those lines you know the first you know let's take one step back so we're going to talk about the really exciting part right ultimately uh, dlg direct did an ipo which was super cool so that was a really fun part of the career and then credit swiss bought dlj mm-hmm. and so when that happened we went from dlg direct we made it csfb direct then, as part of that, CSFB Direct it was sold off to Bank of Montreal, and then it was really through the, the, their Harris Bank, so it's called Harris Direct. It was at that point, you know, we decided to um, to move on and go to Bear right. Stearns. Had enough. Yep. You went to, so when you went to a stalwart Wall Street firm you thought would never have a problem, went to Bear <laughs> Stearns. Yes. So you were um, safe there. Yes. All well. So I, I love the way you're you're joking about my career, Craig. <laughs> well, you know, it's just only the, the biggest, the biggest you know financial event in the last you know ninety years. 19, yes, I, I understand, and I I participate in that. So at uh, at Bear Stearns, uh, one thing I want to mention about just the, I, this is important when I think about mentors. Um, mm-hmm. You know, when I when I moved over to, to work on the on uh, the NetX uh, client and NetX uh, NetX Pro, you know, Brian Shea and Jim Crowley, who were uh, you know, Brian was um, they both they were both at that point you know senior people at Pershing. They really took me under their wing and they really educated me on the clearing custody business, the broker dealer models, and they were really great mentors to me. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was super super important to my career. I just want to make sure. Um, oh yeah them and they're they're great partners to me um really really patient and in, in educating me and, and, and teaching me is, is you know i have very warm memories of, of that oh sure um so at, at bear stearns you know the, i would say two things right right one <laughs> well first of all i came in as the head of, head of product development for the ra uh, custody business which was a, a newer business at the time right and um it was also kind of more of a, you know, a bit of a COL function because basically it was a newer business and I was tasked, you know, when you think about product, it was kind of like the whole thing. So mm-hmm. it was anything from building out the, uh, revamping the te- technology to, and that means everything, right? So from trade balancing, financial planning, performance reporting, client portal, all that, that piece. But what we also did there is we built out a whole new managed account platform. Uh, which had different flavors for it. Uh, so separate account managers. We also built out a, a wrap program as well. Also revamped the mutual fund platform as well. Mm-hmm. If you recall, uh, Bear Stearns had a, had a <laughs> a little ding on its mark on the mutual fund uh, custody and clearing business. So we revamped it and um, uh, it really extended the, the product offering yeah, you know, that our clients, we, we increased our, our NTF platform. We did a lot of things that were really beneficial to our clients and also created a better risk framework and so on and so forth. Was there someone out there that recruited you? Yeah. So um, John Tires uh, was someone who I worked with for a bit at DLJ Direct. Um, he was um, the head of sales and ultimately became a co-head of when the, the RIA and the broker-dealer businesses got combined. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he became a co-head with Joe Chiarci. 
um, at uh, at Bear Stearns. And you know what we were seeing is if you think about Bear Stearns, Bear Stearns uh, on the clearing side uh, was very, you know, obviously a top uh, uh, tier player in the hedge fund clearing custody business. Right. Had a nice broker dealer business and was now growing the RA business. What we were seeing was the trend to fee based business. So you were seeing we had some broker dealer clients that just threw away their broker dealer lines and just did 100% RIA. And they were really, as a broker dealer, they were really um, portfolio managers. And so they ultimately um, uh, moved away from FINRA and just did, did uh, you know, became SEC registered and formed RIAs. And so that's one of the reasons, you know, we saw hedge funds doing the same thing, hedge funds creating RIAs. Um, so what made sense to us was to you know, basically combine those businesses because the tool, tool set and where we we're investing was really in the fee-based business. Um, so to support all the advisory activity of those types of firms and the hmm. core reasons why we combined it. And so ultimately the United States, you know, had responsible for product development for the combined business. So just uh, traversing to that, you know, as uh, Bear Stearns uh, over a beer and on a, a podcast, I can certainly <laughs> talk about the weekend uh, that was, that uh, I got a phone call on the Friday afternoon around four o'clock saying, hey, we need to prepare for J- uh, meetings with JP Morgan and others uh, tomorrow morning. So that was uh, March 14th, four o'clock, and spent the night uh, at Bear Stearns working with some of my colleagues preparing uh, presentations. And uh, Saturday morning at eight, away we went, meeting our, our potential new colleagues. Right. It was, uh, to say the least, an interesting 48 hours. Right. And that was because the Fed told Bear, here's some money, which they thought was going to last a couple months. And they said, no, no, this is for the weekend. We need to be sold by the end of the weekend. Well, as you notice, quite fluid, and I wasn't personally talking to the Fed, but um, it was very fluid. I think it changed uh, pretty quickly from we have a backstop in J.P. Morgan to uh, you need to find a home. And so, you know, what we were being told by the effectively the executive management at Bear, uh, I was probably I don't know forty or fifty was working on uh, on some of the stuff that weekend, hmm. and we're basically told if we don't have a deal done by. Uh, the time the Asian markets open, we're out of business. So literally what's happening that weekend, and it's very surreal and very, you know, pretty vivid memory of all this stuff. Uh, you had one set of people meeting JP Morgan people, mm-hmm. right? And they're kind of there, the business unit that there was, you know, probably would become part of. And um, you had another set of people, really the tech and ops side that were thinking, all right, how are we going to wind this thing down? Yeah. So it was parallel tracks. And then you had another set of people called brokers <laughs> who were trying to get their client files out the door right. um, just in case there wasn't a Bear Stearns on Monday morning. So, and then, uh, so that was Saturday. It was a very active Saturday. And Sunday, we started meeting with JP Moore, uh, kind of smaller groups, like more specific to the group that you'd be working with. And is somewhere, you know, late morning, a phone call came into our conference room we were in. They said, hey, we got to go. And that was it. No reason. And as it turns out, as, as we all learned, there was a point where JP Morgan was not going to go through with it. We were not right. doing that directly. Right. And it's the first time, though it was a Sunday, it's the first time I had a beer during the workday. <laughs> a few of us who were in those meetings were like, it, I mean, it's like crickets in the building. No one was really talking or updating. And it's several hours later, I said, you know what? Let's go to the pub down the block and have a beer. <laughs> so uh, we had wow. a couple of beers and, um, you know, that, that evening, I think around 7.30, we're watching CNBC in Bear Stearns. So mm-hmm. no one's saying anything. And remember, like, this is a Sunday. Normally, like, we're in the office, right? There's 
thousands of people there and very, very active. You're down mm-hmm. to like, you know, a handful of people on a few floors. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, $2 came across <laughs> the screen. Mm-hmm. That was how, uh, that was an interesting weekend. And then at the pleasure of the day after that, you know, all the protesters outside of our building <laughs> and almost going to work wondering if you have a job or not. Yeah. But um, so that was, uh, I mean, it's crazy that the protesters were like up inside the building against security. It was pretty, pretty crazy. The police and it was an interesting way to go to work, Craig. I can imagine. So uh, from there, through that transition, um, I ran the RA custody business and uh, there was a plan that we built out to grow it. A few months into that, there was a decision to sell the business. And so that ultimately got sold to RBC. Mm-hmm. So then I went to Merrill Lynch. I decided not to uh, move forward with, uh, uh, with with that transition. And so I left and went to Merrill Lynch. And why Merrill? That's a good question because they are literally, you know, it's kind of interesting. They um, had the same problem. They, they were <laughs> sold to Bank of America. I had so much fun with the J.P. Morgan Bear Stearns uh, <laughs> uh, transaction. I wanted to do it one more time. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but no, it was... It was um, it's an interesting role. Ultimately, I ran the RA custody business there. Mm. But it was also an opportunity to, um, I also was responsible for financial planning and reporting tools across you know, Merrill Lynch, uh, PBIG, which is the private bank of, of uh, uh, Merrill Lynch, as well as U.S. Trust. And um, ultimately, what was really cool about that, I was able to spend time with a whole bunch of really smart advisors mm. and to learn really from, from like working now with them side by side as a, basically a product owner mm. to really uh, um, learning about how they interact with clients, how their clients feel about what they're providing them. And um, it was a great experience uh, around all that. It's a great learning experience. I had mm. the opportunity to host them, you know, uh, basically reporting and, and planning um, a group of advisors um, and just, was it was a really good opportunity. Was there someone at Merrill who recruited you there? Someone you knew? Uh, there's a few people there, but uh, John Tyre's there as well. And uh, John Tyre connection. John Tyre's connection. And by the way, John's John's phenomenal um, uh, person. Uh, he's also uh, been very helpful in terms of uh, learning from him and his style. He's got a great style about him. He's very creative, very smart. Um, and a deep domain expert in wealth management hmm. and just a good guy. But that's that, that was uh, me being recruited there and uh, did that for a few years and then went on this journey. Well, how, how, before you move on to that, so yeah. how, how has RIA custody changed since you were at Merrill last 10 years ago? Do you mean in terms for Merrill or do you mean overall? Overall. Oh, that's a great question. I probably spend a lot of hours on this, so I'll, but I'll, I'll keep it short. Yeah, we have time. <laughs> you know, I, I think there's a, a few a few consistent things, but then also things that have just been so rapidly changing. One is if, if you go back a bunch of years ago, um, just who you were servicing as as an RA is just fundamentally different. If you mm-hmm. go back, you know, back to the early days when I was at, at Waterhouse, it was a fairly basic offering, right? In terms of people who are buying stocks or mutual funds. There was no such thing as ETFs at that time, right? No. And and maybe someone is buying some fixed income, but basically it was planners that did some form of fee-based business as well. Right. And, you know, from there, it really became a much more sophisticated business, uh, particularly the service. And, you know, it went from, you know, an investment side, it went from that to, okay, we're going to start offering maybe option overlays, Maybe we're offering um, alternatives, 
Um, and so the sophistication of those offerings um, really uh, became pronounced. And then the other part is that the, the growth of separate account managers, right? Mm-hmm. So the idea of like, hey, these institutional managers are now being accessed, uh, ultimately was custodian created connectivity to them for the advisor. So now you're getting kind of access to quote unquote professional money management. So mm-hmm. the idea of having, and then the whole idea of UMAs, right? So in one portfolio, one account, you're having multiple managers. Um, so the sophistication uh, of the offering really, really blossomed. And therefore the, the, the custodian needs the service that really grew. Um, and then, you know, if I look at Bear Stearns, for example, you know, where, where we were really uh, doing well with was advisors who targeted higher net worth and ultra high net worth. And the big part of that was some of the specialized lending that we were able to provide um, uh, to that to that market segment, and which is also, you know, it's fairly unique. Um, and but, the, you know, some of the larger clients who have larger clients have larger clients um, and it's end clients, right? Sometimes they're very, very sophisticated needs around lending. And we were able to provide that in many cases to people at a very uh, competitive rate. From the custodian? Uh, from, yeah, from the custodian. So they help, you know, really help advisors win business. They wouldn't have been able to win if they couldn't provide, you know, help on, on the full, you know, instead of just thinking the asset side, the whole assets and liability side. Um, and that's the other part I think has changed quite a bit. It's, you know, we went very much around um, very focused on performance and returns. And you know, beating a benchmark or beating the market to now, it's it blossoms into asset allocation, risk management, income management. Um, so it, and and now it's actually gone the other way, where it's starting to move away from product centric, performance centric, to relationship centric. Um, I think it's moving to um, helping. You know, a lot of the clients of advisors today you know, are small business owners, and they they need help with how to think through selling their business, right? They're baby boomers. They have some, they have small businesses and by small, they're not that small, but they're, you know, call it, uh, you know, five to a hundred million and needing help on how to sell and transition a business and think about taxes, how to transfer wealth. Um, you know, it's, it's, um, it's, it's now at a whole nother level of help that folks need. And, um, and it's really, it's getting into, can you, can you find a middle markets banker for me to work with? Um, and it's really helping um, their, their end clients really do that. The other thing I would say is all the practice management that's been built out with the custodians. You know, I think that uh, without using names, I think there's some really good practice management help that, have, that the custodians provide. I think they also have really good technology consultants out there. Um, you know, you, you see, you know, on the practice management side across the gamut, right? Anywhere from thinking about behavioral science to best practices in running your running and scaling your business, help on marketing. Um, there's also, um, you know, one of the things we did at, at Bear and then others are certainly doing today is helping people find the people to support their business. So accountants, lawyers, you know, we actually help people find real estate and find offices. Hmm. Um, so it's 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 really the custodians, depending on you know which custodian, but um, certainly it's way more sophisticated in terms of all the help that they can provide. Uh, a client. Allow me to just break in on this thought-provoking interview that I'm doing for a word from our sponsors. I want to take a little break from this episode to talk to you about one of my favorite sponsors, the Invest in Others Foundation. Invest in Others is a nonprofit. You can find them at investinothers.org. 
and they look to raise money and give out awards to charities that are sponsored by financial advisors. So it's financial advisors, uh, favorite charities, charities that they spend a lot of time supporting. So Invest in Others looks to get sponsorships from the industry and funnel that money to advisors' favorite charities. I really like this this charity uh, and this nonprofit. I think you should take a look at it. Again, investinothers.org. They've got a couple other programs. One is a Grants for Good program. Uh, again, delivering money to different needy organizations and needy groups. They're also starting a corporate awards program, which is going to be a little bit different, but still within the industry. Uh, another way for financial services, uh, wealth management corporations to help uh, donate money to people in need. So I really like Invest in Others. I think you should take a look at it. Invest in Others. Let me spell this for you. I-N-V-E-S-T-I-N-O-T-H-E-R-S dot O-R-G. So it sounds like Bear, because you keep referring back to Bear. We did this at Bear. We did that at Bear. The Bear was really on the cutting edge of a lot of this stuff, and that they hadn't had that big mortgage back problem that they would have been would have been more known for these the innovations rather than the collapse. Uh, <laughs> Craig, are you are you going to make me get upset? No. Yes, yes, I'm looking for tears. I know you're about to get a run video. You know, for those of you in the podcast, we're watching video right now, and and I have a little tear going down my eye. The video won't go out, but I'll save that for the paying paying subscribers. <laughs> uh, no, so uh, you know, we we were on the cusp of building an amazing business, and. Um, yeah we were doing a lot of things. And again, under, you know, John's leadership, and, um, you know, there's a lot of really cool stuff that we're doing. John tires, John tires. Uh, it's unfortunate. Another area of the business, you know, crushed, crushed, uh, the rest of Bear Stearns, but it happens. Happened to a number of other companies too. Yeah. Right, so, uh, so Merrill, so you Merrill, had enough there after, after a couple of years. And then what made you not go to another be an employee somewhere. What made you start your own company? For quite a while, I, I had two two thoughts that I thought were um, opportunities uh, that really help advisors. And I really actually, and I don't really talk a lot about this, but um, I actually started first. Um, I, the two ideas is what I'm doing now. One was one of them, and the other right. one was uh, really doing a roll up strategy. Hmm. And and that was kind of the initial uh, the initial drive was to do the roll up strategy. Basically, what I wanted to do was acquire RIAs, um, create a regional and then a national brand. Um, and uh, really, uh, you know, the business model that I'm a fan of in, 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 the, in what, was, what is now the role, you know, there's obviously a bunch of roll-ups out there, but the ones that are able to find that middle ground of advisors, you know, helping them, how are they been successful around their investment framework and their messaging and how they operate and interact with their clients, maintaining that. It's centralizing everything else, right? So all the stuff that, you know, most advisors probably started at a at a at another at a bigger firm and peeled away, and as they become successful, call it at two hundred fifty million or five hundred million or a billion of AOM, somewhere in there they realize like, holy cow, I went away from doing what I really like doing, which is you know growing my business and mm -hmm. and, and my relationships with my clients to, you know, I'm dealing with operations issues, HR issues, compliance issues tech issues, right. custodian, which custodian should I be with? Should I be with two custodians? All stuff that, that isn't their passion, right? So take all that stuff and take it off their back, right? And centralize mm -hmm. all of that and make it really mm -hmm. scalable. And I think, I think a lot of advisors, uh, you know, 
you can see it all the MA activity. I think you're seeing that that makes a lot of sense to them. Um, so we started down that path, but the, the, the challenge I was having at the time was the chicken and egg. You, you know, you go to a private equity firm. Yep. Like it. Um, you got any, any advisors lined up so we can invest in it. Let me go, let me go to that side. Hey, you got the money lined up. So, and that was my first time ever trying to raise capital, which is a whole nother skill set. Uh, That's another skill. Yes. Uh, and luckily I've, I've, uh, I've learned someone helping you there. Did you have a mentor or a coach to help you guide you through that experience? Um, you know, I, I, I reached out to several people, uh, Mark DeBersion being one of them. Um, and who I didn't know real well then, but knew of him and we'd interacted a little bit, um, uh, prior and, uh, you know, Mark is just a super bright guy and straightforward. Um, and I, I really, uh, and you know, obviously amazing experience. You know, Mark is just phenomenal. Uh, so he was one of the people, uh, as well as other other kind of folks that I, that um, I spoke with, and um, so I did that for a while. And ultimately, in that process, I looked at the technology that was being offered to advisors because I wanted to have a really great technology stack, um, something that was seamless, that was integrated, uh, easy to use, and so on and so forth. And so ultimately, something that you can scale this business, right? You can centralize all this stuff, right? All these advisors, you want to have a scalable technology. And at the time, I really was struggling to find something that, you know, really kind of met my vision of what I wanted that to be. Right. And the second thing, you know, so that's kind of gets into like, you know, really this whole kind of separate technology that was out there. And then the other part was, you know, really, I thought it was really important then and now the, the, the technology should be something that really is extending the advisor relationship with a client. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, so I was—I wasn't really finding it. So I went back to well, my first idea was the technology stuff, something that I'm—I'm I'm good at, something I've had a lot of history in, um, and something I'm passionate about. And and after kind of seeing what was out there at the time, I said, you know, I'm pivoting right back to the, that idea, and I'm gonna—I'm gonna go run with it. Hmm. And um, and that's what we did. And um, you know, back so now it's around 2014-ish, and uh, created our first couple of designs, and. Um, uh, away we go. And, um, and then a lot of things happen. So you, you create, so why, where'd you get the name Venar? That was the first name of the company. It was, and I'm still passionate about the name, but I'm very happy we changed the name. Right. So Venar, uh, website's so I, still up. Uh, what was that? Venar website is still up. Is it really? Yeah. It's not supposed to be, or maybe it redirects. I don't know. I, I don't no. know if we're paying for that domain anymore. It says <laughs> Venar on it. <laughs> I haven't looked, but uh, Fenar. So Fenar is personal to me. So um, my my, you know, I grew up uh, in Coldspring Harbor in Lo- on Long Island, and we had a, we had a second home uh, on, on Lake Fenar, and we would spend our summers there when I was growing up, and um, I know also you know we'd spend our our winter breaks there, and it's a place where I learned a lot of things, did things, and learned things for the first time. So we. We rented out part of our property to a riding stable, so I learned how to ride a horse. And uh, I caught my first fish there. I um, learned how to swim there. Though I got to tell you, my kids are having a much better opportunity to learn how to swim than I did. Swimming. (laughs) All my kids have that. Well, you know, yes, but this was um, learning to swim in a lake upstate in early June. Was freezing. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Looking back on it, I think my parents apparently didn't love me as much as I thought. Right. Yeah. So I, I learned how to snowmobile, learned how to ski, 
Mm-hmm. Um, so all these first, uh, and I, you know, there's just uh, a lot of, a lot of really great things, uh, in terms of that. And so when I was thinking about naming the company, I wanted to make it personal and that's where that came from, uh, Lake Bernard. And, uh, so that's where the, the starting, starting point was. So you, you started coding in 2014. Yeah. And then very in the same year is when you, you bought, uh, Alexi Sokolin's company, Nestec. Yes. Yeah. So, so Alexi. What, what, uh, decision to, to do so quickly you know lexi or, or lex lex soklin um you know i was introduced to him uh by a colleague of a former colleague of mine at merrill lynch and i was introduced to him and as soon as i met him i was like i gotta work with this guy this mm-hmm. guy is really smart um he's thinking differently than a lot of people and i think you've met obviously you've met with lex this is a right. really smart guy and really thinking out of the box thinking differently and true the thought was, uh, and then it was interesting when he was doing nest egg. Um, and so he and, and, and Vladimir Baranov, who, who, uh, was part of that, um, so, you know, slightly different personalities, but does super bright uh, works incredibly hard. Um, but I started getting, you know, working with them and, and, um, before we acquired nest egg and I realized that, okay, we, we need to put this thing together once, once we're in a position where we can do it. Um, you know, wanted to uh, put the companies together. And so that's, that's, uh, that's what we did. Um, we bought nest egg and Lex and, uh, Vladimir joined, um, as, as co-founders and away we went. Was there something, what was it about nest egg that, why'd you pick them? What was it about their technology besides the people? Yeah. Well, I like the thinking, right? So I, I like the, this, this really kind of got to the place of how to extend an advisor's relationship. So, you know, for, for me and and um, and where Lex had pivoted to was really to use the technology to help advisors, you know, scale their business. So kind of think of the, you know, one of the things that Lex branded was a built on Robo DNA, and the reason being is 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 that's exactly what we're doing, but for everything, right? So automation, scale. So the kind of the thought of like something's beautiful, but it's also something really scalable. Doing that together. So that was. You know that that um, that was a big big reason for it. Um, you know, kind of taking that thinking uh, that went with it. You know, we we uh, ultimately rewrote the technology twice, uh, maybe three times now. But um, in terms of the front end, you know, we're in our I think our third or fourth generation of of the client portal. Obviously, a lot of learnings happened since 2014. Uh, but when I think about you know we've you know which I'm sure when you get this when I think about you know acquiring uh, assets or companies. Um, you know, it, it, a lot of goes into that, right? You think about people, you think about the IP, you think about, you know, how does that fit into your overall strategy? Is it, does it make you go faster? Um, you know, get, get to where you want to go, your vision faster or not. And, um, and all that, right. That's, there's a whole, whole bunch of dials when you're thinking about it. I mean, at the end of the day though, it's like, do you want to work with these people? Mm-hmm. And when I, uh, I, one of the times when we, um, this is prior to the acquisition and this is like, I, I felt, you know, Mark DeBersion would say this about some of his uh, uh, younger colleagues. And I felt this with, for sure with Lex and Vladimir. It was in many ways a, a reverse mentorship um, mm-hmm. where I was really learning really how the next, you know, Gen Y, you know, how they think about financial services firms, right? And if you, th- in, you know, uh, I'll paraphrase Lex, but basically, you know, he would say, you know, if you think about my, my teen years and 20 years, we had two financial uh, dislocations and we don't really have trust in the bigger brands 
But the one thing that has gotten better every year is technology. That's mm-hmm. what art we believe in. And so, you know, and then how they communicate, you know, one of the funny stories, this first day literally in an office with Vladimir, we had three cubes and I was in the front cube and behind me was Lex and to my right behind me and the right was Vladimir. And I turned around and asked Vladimir a question and he, he politely answered. And about a half hour later, I do the same thing. I turn around and ask him a question and Vladimir said, um, do you text? <laughs> I go, I do. He said, can you just text me your question? <laughs> so that was uh, really uh, telling because it, you know, and then when they, when they started joining me and uh, or going on their own to, to advisors uh, offices and they, they were looking at the technology people were using, which was still paper-based Excel word, um, you know, the separate technologies, they came back, Oh my God, I can't work there. Like, <laughs> I don't know how they're going to recruit anyone my age because it's just like almost like a non-starter for them to think that they'd be in an environment like that. They were shocked by it. Anyway. So, uh, that was kind of the early, early beginnings of, uh, of an art. Yeah. It's, it seems like it's, uh, not that long ago, but it's already five years. Yeah. It feels a little longer though. <laughs> <laughs> it's fun, but I got to tell you that, you know, obviously doing a startup is a whole different, uh, you know, gig for me. And, and, uh, mm-hmm. it's, uh, it's a lot of fun. It's exciting. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, especially, especially early on every, every new potential client, every new kind of product release, mm-hmm. or it's so critical to your success. Like yeah. you're like hanging on it, right? You're hanging on getting that new client or getting mm-hmm. that phone call back from a, a VC or whatever it may be, right. It's just so, it's just so critical to your, to your journey, uh, it's really, um, it's really palpable. So, so you've done this, you've gone through a startup, you've gone from, you know, the whole, the, most of the process, you haven't exited, so you haven't, you haven't done that yet, but, um, what, what, if you had to start up again, <laughs> what have you learned from the advisor engine Venar experience and how would you do it differently? Oh, I'd probably speak to my wife more. <laughs> <laughs> she would appreciate that. I think she'd appreciate yeah, it. She would appreciate that. Um, yeah, no. So what, boy, you know, I was asked this question actually recently uh, about learnings. I, you know, it, it, it is a journey. I'm still, you know, obviously learning. I learn stuff all the time about what a small business is, but it took me, I would say a solid 18 months to, uh, to reprogram myself. Um, you know, right. when you, when you, you're coming from bigger firms, um, with, with, um, you know, pretty, pretty big jobs and you have a lot of support right? Either directly or indirectly. There's, you know, some of these firms like HR alone has like multiple types of HR departments. Um, marketing has all sorts of departments. And, you know, when I'm sitting in my loft and I've got my cat next to me and I'm looking out the window and, and realizing like, oh, I got to go get the paper, printer paper, right? But <laughs> like, you know, it's a different, the difference is, and we talk about this when we recruit people, um, uh, when they're particularly more senior is, when you're a senior person at a big company, stuff comes to you, right? Mm-hmm. All the time. Like you're solving problems. Of course you're thinking about stuff and you're doing those things, but generally, you know, probably bulk of your day is stuff coming to you, right? People want to show you their plan. They want to show you your budget. They want to show you their thinking mm-hmm. or, Hey, we have a problem, right? Mm-hmm. So can you help me solve this thing? Mm-hmm. When you do a startup, it's the reverse of that, right? You're thinking not only like the vision and strategy and all that, but how do you solve it? Right. What, what are the things you're trying to solve for? So you're, no so, one wants to talk to you. They don't know who you are. Right. And so, so it's kind of like, um, 
you, you, you basically have to identify the problem, you have to solve the problem. And that's from the little stupid things like, you know, yeah, you need to get printer paper to like the business, right? Like all that stuff and everything in between that like you're doing it. Like you have no one to give homework to. Mm-hmm. You're giving yourself homework. Right. And it, so it takes time to reprogram uh, at least it did for me. I, I can't say that for everyone, but I... No, I, I did it for me too. You know, I, yeah. I worked for Broadridge for 10 years, well, yeah. the precursor to Broadridge, then left to become a partner in a consulting firm, a boutique consulting firm. Yeah. And it took me, I, I tell people, it took me about a year to get out of the, well, let's do a memo and have a meeting yeah. mindset to, we got to do this now. Yep. We're not getting paid. Yes. Mindset. Yes. Then there's that sense of urgency. Um, payroll this week. It's the sense of urgency. Like you know, it goes back to what I was talking about a minute ago. Literally, like every call, every email you may get back from whatever that you know can help you grow your business or whatever it may be. So so super critical. Hmm. Uh, it still is, of course. Um, but oh my god, like the you know that it's really uh, really different. Um, so so what, what else would I, you do differently besides speak to your wife more? More family time. <laughs> Now, what I meant by uh, speaking to my wife, I'd, I'd say probably prepare better for the journey that we're about to go on. Um, you set her uh, expectations better is what you Yes, mean. yes, yes. Uh, and by the way, my wife is phenomenal. She uh, has, has a great career in, uh, that she has, and she's super bright, and she works incredibly she hard. She is uh, the compliance uh, director for, uh, at Brown Brothers, uh, the wealth management business. And uh, so she has her own pressure job. Uh, type of thing, but um, so and all, and so the, the game of the series. What would I do differently? The other thing I, I I would say the big learning, right? So we talked about kind of converting that the mentality. The other one is it's all about raising capital. If you're doing a startup and the idea is that you want to, you know, my job, right, was was raising capital, right? And my passion is our clients. Our my passion is building a great product. My passion is providing great service to our clients, and that's that's where you know, my passion lies. It's certainly my passion is not in raising capital. So you, most people have a natural tendency to, to do the things they're passionate about. You know, it's kind of like who wants to pay taxes on January 15th. Sure. If I was to redo, right, or what I've learned, I would say realizing that's actually my number one job mm-hmm. is raising capital in a startup venture. I'd say that's, a, that's my learning. And so, cause you go into it with, this is my passion. This is my vision. This is my strategy. And I'm excited about this. You don't go into it saying, I am so excited to meet people and go raise money. Right. I don't think a lot of people go into that. Maybe, maybe people love doing it. I'm sure there's some people love doing it. So there's a whole learning curve there, you know, um, getting your story out, getting your message out, you know, just the whole process of, of uh, you know, early on, you're talking to VCs, you know, what are the right ones even to talk to? Because in our space, Fintech means a lot of things to a lot of people, right? Um, so fintech can mean bill pay, right? Fintech can, can be, mean banking. Fintech can mean insurance tech. It can mean wealth tech. It can mean capital markets. And then subsets of even that. So the, the, the idea of, of fintech is so broad. Right now, it's crypto. It's, it's bit, Bitcoin and all that stuff. So just realizing that it's, it's a lot of work you know, to organize that effort and making sure that you're using your network to, you know, so they have a lot easier to using your network to, to get into mm-hmm. different uh, firms. So for those out there thinking about a startup, um, your network's super important. Um, mm-hmm. And um, focusing on capital uh, from day one, uh, along with the vision and strategy is incredibly important. Would you say looking at your funding, 
in the order you did your funding, would you still do that same way? You, do a, you did a seed round in 2015. Would you do that earlier or later? Then you did a venture round the next year. Would, would you still do that in that order? And would you change that at all? Oh, I think the order was was uh, correct. You know, in terms of uh, doing the seed rounds, and there's a, there was a couple in there, and um, that that makes the most sense to do the seed round because, you know, if if you built a, a trusted network, the easiest place to get money is people who trust you, uh, who believe in you. So, that, so starting there, I think, makes the most sense. And also, if you're getting money from people who are in kind of the space or around the space, they can also help you. They can be really good sounding boards. Mm -hmm. Uh, They can also help introduce introduce you to people. So there's lots of reasons why uh, to do a seed round. So who's your biggest help in your seed round? What was that? Was there there any one person who was your biggest help networking in the seed round? There are a a bunch of people. You know, it's kind of hard to uh, uh, just just point out to a singular person, but there was a bunch of people that were really helpful uh, in, in the seed rounds. And, and in many cases they, they went in, you know, into the second seed round. Um, uh, so that's, that was great. And so from a trajectory standpoint, you know, I think you know, doing C makes sense. Um, the big decision I think that you get to is when you start getting into the A round, right? So how big do you want that to be? And that was pretty and, quick. I mean, you did the seed in February of 2016, then the, the A came in November. Uh, well, our first seed was really 14, 15. So the, well, I think you're probably reflective of the second, the second seed. Second round. seed, but yeah. then you did a venture round in February of 2016. Yes, uh, no, yeah, in, in November 2016, we took in 20 million from Wisdom Tree, and okay. they've been phenomenal partners to us. Um, yeah, you know, it's kind of interesting. You, you I, I don't really have experience actually taking money from a VC. It mm-hmm. ended up being a strategic partner, and and I know VCs and private equity firms uh, certainly offer additional services. But what I've mm-hmm. found incredibly helpful with Wisdom Tree is. You know, at the time we had about seven people and yeah. we have about 90 now. And something I didn't even think about, quite frankly, going into it is the type of help they can help scale your business. Mm-hmm. So they've been very uh, open and great partners in like, we need help thinking through HR or, or you know, we had no benefits or we like min- minimal benefits, right? <laughs> so thinking about benefits plans and, right. um, uh, you know, thinking about, you know, scaling our finance uh, function to, um, marketing, you know, when, when they, um, we are in a whirlwind when we, when basically it became clear that we were going to move forward together, mm-hmm. um, you know, basically we set a, a time frame three weeks to get it done and, and it was like, we're going to rebrand the company, right? Mm-hmm. We're, which means colors, a name, the URL. How'd you get the name? I mean, obviously it seems obvious now, but it seems obvious now. And I will tell you, uh, yeah, so What's wrong with Vinar? That was a great name. So the, the I love Vinar still today, say, but I am incredibly happy we rebranded. Um, you know what? What the feeling was uh, from the Wisdom Tree team, and, and I, I agreed with the then and now is that people didn't know what Vinar was, and we weren't going to spend a ton of money to explain Vinar, right? So let's get mm-hmm. something that's a little more literal, um, so people know kind of out of the gate what it is. The the other thing is at that time we were being lumped in with kind of more of a B to C that pivoted. And that wasn't the case. We were always for advisors. So getting a more literal name that was clear that like, no, we built this technology for advisors. Yes. We didn't build it for consumers to, and then pivoted. Like it was always built for this. So that's where I, another reason why it became more literal. You know, we, we actually had a, three different groups of people helping hmm. uh, it. And, um, uh, and at the time, our, our CEO now, Craig Ramsey, who's also incredibly talented, super bright, 
um, has many tools in the tool shed. Um, was also working with um, the marketing group at, at Wisdom Tree, and they, they are working with their marketing outsource team. Uh, Jano Steinberg, who is an incredible marketer, uh, he's the CEO of Wisdom Tree, he's this incredible uh, marketing person. And the, the name came out of I think, that group. And you know, we were getting lists from people on a daily basis, and then eventually, like that one, that one came out, and it was great. And um, the rest is history. The rest is history. But you know, the funny thing is, um, my wife, who speaks Italian, had to get involved. Uh, we had a different name before that we were looking at, mm-hmm. and which was uh, Quantum Advisor. Mm-hmm. And as it turned out, uh, a gentleman from Italy uh, had the URL and only spoke Italian. Mm-hmm. So. My wife speaks Italian, thank goodness. Mm. So now I had, to, I had to get my wife to help negotiate <laughs> getting quantumadvisor.com huh. from uh, some guy in, uh, in Italy. And um, did you get it? We, 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 we did get it, but then we ended up pivoting to this. And then the panic came in because the person that listed the advisorengine.com, and we negotiated a price with that person, um, actually turned out they didn't own the URL. Somebody else, they forgot to, <laughs> they, they didn't re- relist it. And so then we had to go to another person. Now it's like, it's literally getting down to like, you know, a big announcement, right? So mm-hmm. we, we make this big announcement and holy cow, like we don't have the URL. Um, and, uh, but anyway, uh, and Vladimir. Did they really soak you for the name or? Really nice um, no, it, it was, it was a fair negotiation. It, um, you know, it wasn't, wasn't crazy, but, um, they obviously didn't also understand the pressure we were under either. Hmm. Um, but Vladimir, um, uh, negotiated that and did a great job. So, because that's always a big issue for startups is, is getting the name. Yes, yeah, getting the URL, and some some, especially firms with some money that the that people know, then you t- wind up getting raked over the coals. Yeah, and then we we especially wanted to get it before the announcement. We just took in twenty million, right? So. Yes, yeah, <laughs> that's a good good time for that. Yes. So you you know, Rich, you were worried we wouldn't be able to fill forty five minutes with your career. We've done an hour. We have done an hour. Well, you have a lot of good probing questions. Well, you because you're an interesting person. So let's start to uh, wind down phase where I'm going to ask these other questions that are uh, not about your career, but more about you and, and and how you think. And I think these also bring out a lot of interesting aspects of people and, and uh, people who listen like these questions as well. So what has become more important to you in your personal life over the past few years? In my personal life is, is my family. It's probably important to say that uh, yeah. the same time I was uh, starting a Venar Advisor Engine, we were also having children for the first time. Because mm-hmm. so, um, you weren't, didn't have enough pressure at the time. Didn't have enough pressure. My my daughter was born in uh, 2012, and my son in 2015. You know, not to get sappy, but um, you know, getting married has been great, and, and having mm-hmm. children uh, really has completed my life. Um, yeah. it's really incredibly fulfilling, it's incredibly mm-hmm. hard, um, but uh, incredibly fulfilling to uh, have children. And they won't even know that because they were too young to even know what was going on when yes. the crazy startup days were going. That is right. So uh, going back to, to Julie, my, my wife, incredibly supportive during this whole process. Um, and uh, so, you know, family for me over the past several years has been uh, transformative for, for my life. So the, the, the startup phase is sort of over. Now you're a real company with, with real clients and, and money. So how do you stay motivated and keep your entrepreneurial spirit going? 
Well, you know, uh, I still consider us a startup, but, um, uh, and I don't want to ever lose that quite frankly, because then mm-hmm. I, then I think you start getting potentially complacent, but I, I would say there's, there's three places what that motivates me. One is I love, love our team, our, our group of, you know, almost 90 people now. I mean, absolutely love our team. They're super good people. Um, smart. They're, they're passionate about our, uh, our client base. And then second is our client base. You know, I just, I'm, you know, serving advisors and helping them is uh, something that's, you know, going back to my Waterhouse days. It's always been in me and um, it resonates with me and helping advisors deliver uh, is, uh, and, and, and one of the journeys we're on, right, is to help advisors deliver advice to, to probably the 7 trillion of assets that don't have an advisor today. And that's probably people who need the most are not getting advice. And so, you know, my altruistic point of view in all this is I'm hopeful that delivery of our technology will enable advisors to serve a set of clients that, that they just don't serve today. The third is my father. You know, I have a picture of my father and on my, uh, my desk and um, I look at it many times a day. Uh, something I'm very proud of, someone who unfortunately passed away at a fairly young age at, at, at 55. Um, and when I was 14, 15 years old. And so, um, but there's many things he taught me uh, before then that I still carry through to today. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, I think many, many cases, fathers and sons, you know, you're always trying to make your father proud of you. And uh, that's, that's what I try to do every day. Now that Advisor Engine is 90 people, you're doing a lot of hiring. How do you identify people that will be a good fit at Advisor Engine? We've developed in, in six values and um, we took this very seriously and we still take it very seriously and it's uh, camaraderie it's curiosity it's creativity it's crushing it internally we put an f in front of that it's for the record um it's celebration and it's clarity and the one that that when you think about um you know, interviewing people and who you want to work with. And uh, when I found the company, like camaraderie, and we purposely said that, so versus like team player or whatever. And we went through a whole exercise, by the way, to, to kind of get to this. Um, and camaraderie is the thing of, am I, is the person sitting next to me or the person in the meeting somebody I want to work with? You know, is this somebody that I'm excited to listen to, someone I decided to work with, someone I'm going to care about, right? Because camaraderie really means you care about somebody. If you, and if mm-hmm. you have that, right, you, you have trust, right? You create, you're okay to be vulnerable, right? Because why is that important? That's important so that people can try new things, right? And share their thinking and not feel like there's, they're going to be judged or there's going to be retribution or there's going to be like, you know, fear of failure. Retribution. Right? 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 Like we all, everybody fails and it's okay, mm-hmm. right? Um, as long, but if you have trust, you don't, you don't have fear of failure. And so to, to me, you know, if we're going to work this intensely, these many hours, camaraderie is the key. Right. Mm-hmm. I, and, and so for me that, you know, trying to discover that in an in interview is it's hard. It's, it's certainly, you know, I rely a lot on my gut. Um, good thing. I'm, I'm generally right with them. Not always perfect, but super, super important as a camaraderie component. And, you know, just to talk about the celebration, and this is something actually we continue to get, need to get better at, is what we realize that we're so focused on, you know, just whatever job is at hand, whatever we're doing, that we need, as a, as in, as a group, we need to celebrate more. So we really mm-hmm. want to highlight that and make that as a core kind of component so that 
small wins, big wins. Let's celebrate along the way. And that's a work in progress for us. You know, we, we need to get better at that. We've, we've certainly have gotten better. We used to have this daily meeting that we all kind of didn't like attending. So the very first thing after we got to this whole exercise was we're going to celebrate killing that meeting. <laughs> so, so Craig Ramsey, uh, who's now our COO, you know, literally brought in, you know, some beer into the, it was, you know, we surprised everyone. So they all came in for there's a five o'clock meeting a beer in there and, and balloons said RIP. <laughs> <laughs> and we celebrated killing the meeting. Killing that. <laughs> so that was a lot of, that was a lot of fun. <laughs> um, you know, uh, and I'm going to paraphrase this. There was an interesting thing. Uh, Mark Cuban was interviewed recently mm-hmm. about, you know, who does, he, you know, when you think about who, who his favorite employees are and who he likes to hire and work with. And, you know, the first three things, you know, were a lot of things I think a lot of people would say, right? So, Smart, hardworking, creative, uh, things like that. Um, but he added a, a, what I say is a fourth from my recollection, and I'll paraphrase it. But basically, the people who take problems off of my plate, mm. I love. Mm. Right, I love to work with, and it's so true, right? That you want to be working with people who um, who can solve problems, right? Sure. So not, so yeah, it's fine to, of course, there's always going to be a challenge and you, and you want to help certainly the team solve those challenges, but the people that have kind of those core values, courts, they're smart, they're hardworking, they're creative and you like working with them. And they also are kind of taking stuff and solving it proactively is perfect. Bring me solutions. Don't bring me problems. And solve it. Yeah. Not only bring the solution, but solve it. And solve it. Yeah. What bad advice do you hear being given out most often? You know, I'm going to give the, uh, the, the, uh, my view of large corporations and, and what we're doing here. Cause I think things that personally, I think don't even work in large corporations certainly don't work in a startup and that's called allocation budget. Those are important things. And of course you always need to think about that, but the first place you should be thinking about what are you trying to solve for? Right. What is, what, what, what do your clients need? And are you solving that? And, and also be thinking about, and this is, uh, I think, more of Steve Jobs thinking is, you know, many times I, you're going to come up with an idea that other people didn't realize was a problem. Mm-hmm. And that's, the, you know, that's, I think, super important, right? That, well, your customers, what Steve Jobs said, the customer doesn't know what he wants until you show it to him. Yeah. And so I don't feel that strongly. I think I, I, I feel there's a kind of having a combination of the two, right? Where you're thinking about something that you, maybe your customer or client is not thinking about. Um, and I'll, by the way, I'll give you a couple of stories there. Uh, Cause then you have to have confidence because if you're going and I'll, I'll talk about that in a minute, but it's super important to get feedback from your client base. So for me, it's getting uh, from a user standpoint of how the user technology to right. Uh, getting groups of people to talk about features they want. I think it's super important. But that first part, and this almost goes back to uh, one of your earlier questions. Um, you know, we, we had this vision around uh, delivering, you know, a really cool client portal that's interactive for advisors. And when we talked about that as kind of part of your, your core value problem moving forward and that, and that the, your, your client portal, your, how you interact with your client online is actually an extension of you and how value will be, will be shown. When we talked about that, you know, four or five years ago, most firms, like, it was like crickets. Like, they didn't, there was, like, client experience, like, what do you, you know? And now, literally, we, you know, the past, you know, two plus years now, we have people, when we go meet them, they're basically telling us our thesis, right? Which is very fulfilling that we're now 
sitting in a room of people who are passionate about the client experience that they're delivering. Uh, and now we, we go further than that, but um, you know, we think about all the experiences, right? The client, the advisor, the, the operations people. Um, but that, you know, what I say there is like just sometimes you, you, you have to put blinders on, right? And earmuffs on and feel, you know, if you have a conviction and you believe in what, what uh, is the right pathway forward, like sometimes you have to do that. You see it through and that's hard. It's not easy to do that. No, it is not easy. Um, do you uh, gift books to people? If you do, what books uh, do you gift most often? <laughs> well, I don't, I wouldn't say I do it most often, uh, or, or I'd say, you know, uh, a, a lot. But what I did do is I gave everyone in our company a, bunch, a couple of years ago The Hard Thing About the Hard Things mm. by Ben Horowitz. Yep. And, you know, and while there's some colorful language in there that, you know, I, I don't subscribe to mm-hmm. the journey that he went on in the scribes, which is very raw mm-hmm. is I think every person that works at a startup should read that every, every founder, every employee, because it gives you insight into um, the, the pure emotions and, and stuff that's happening. You know, every, every startup you know, it isn't like, oh, I have an idea and boom, it's magic. It's, you know, we're, we're a unicorn, right? There's a journey for most and it's a scary journey. It's a fun journey. Um, it's raw, right? Lots of emotion. And so reading that, um, and there's some funny stories in there, particularly one about hiring a, a head of sales, but um, <laughs> it's, uh, that was a great book. And, and, mo- and most recently, and most, uh, the most recent book I've read, um, you're going to see a theme here is uh, Shoe Dog. Oh, yeah. And, um, just to see that journey, which ultimately was, uh, you know, like an 18 year journey from, uh, when he started it to when he, uh, eventually did an IPO and just hearing yeah. again, kind of, it, it's a great read. Cause I think, you know, he's very introspective and in what he was actually feeling at the time and, and just, you know, just kind of how he was, you know, who he was and, and, and people he hired and also some very funny stories in there, but they're um, not quite as raw, I'd say as Ben Hart's <laughs> book, <laughs> but the journey and the ups and downs and the, and the, all the stuff that happened as another great book. And hmm. that was an 18 year journey. Right? That was a long yeah. journey, right? He spent a bunch of years while he started Nike before he was even called Nike, you know, as an accountant by day to pay sort sure. of salesperson, you know? And, yeah. At any rate, so there's, you know, I'm going to give that that book out to a bunch of people as well because I think, um, you know, again, it's a for very related to what we're doing. Well, Rich, you, well, I want to wrap up now. I mean, you you survived the the whole interview. <laughs> you got through I, it. I did. I did. I feel I feel good. Thank you. I feel good too. I thought this was what this was great. I, I really learned a lot, and I think uh, people are going to enjoy listening to it and. Uh, I really appreciate you spending the time to to share all this with me and the audience. Great. Well, thank you. And um, I hope it's a beautiful day today. I hope you get outside from, uh, from your what looks like your office. I'm going to get right outside from my office and hopefully you will too. Okay. Take care. Thanks, Rich. Take care. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Hey, everyone. It's Craig again. Just a few quick items before we go. If you like this episode, please give it a five-star review on iTunes. I would very much appreciate it. 
And remember to check out the show notes for links to everything we talked about on this episode. For more information on wealth management technology, you can read my Wealth Management Today blog at wmtoday.com. Thanks for tuning in, and I'm looking forward to talking to you all again next week. 